This is Dr. C, and I'm stoked to welcome you to an episode of Christory the Podcast. When history is told by Christine, the good old days, and even the not-so-good old days, will make you nod your head. I'm glad you made it to the party. Let's do this. Welcome again to Christory, where history rules and it's always an adventure. At least the history that we explore here, because we leave the boring stuff in the beaten track to someone else. This is Dr. Christine Contrada, and in today's episode of Christory, we're taking a plunge into some pretty deep and dark crime history. So fasten your seatbelts and hold on to your bagels, because history isn't always roses and butterflies. These stories can't even be sanitized by Disney. After decades of looking left a case colder than a tub of Italian ice from the Lemon Ice King of Corona, Plain Close Police on 5th Avenue finally slapped the cuffs on the Gilgo Beach Killer last week as he left his office. The arrest itself was without pomp and circumstance, but it's been a media frenzy. Christery has flip-flops on the ground on Long Island, New York, with the top six list of infamous murders. Why six? Well, six because due to the influence of the Bible on popular culture, many see that number as demonic. And it seems fitting, since we certainly have a chilling episode on our hands. Our focus is Long Island, New York, and even if Queens and Brooklyn geographically are on the island, they're a different world. So this is a Suffolk County and Nassau purely strong island throwdown. If you enjoy this podcast, shoot me an email at Christery Online, and we'll hang out with this historical theme and check out the history of crime in the boroughs. Long Island is not a dangerous place, statistically speaking, at all. But with a population of almost 8 million people, an overflow from one of the biggest and most diverse cities in the world, it's not small-town USA by any stretch of the imagination. So Long Island hasn't escaped some seriously eyebrowsing crime. If you are interested in true crime, you're far from being alone. Morbid curiosity is a very common psychological trait. Way before Netflix was churning out documentaries about serial killers, there was unsolved mysteries. And if you know, you know. And I see you dancing to that jingle with your bag of Jiffy Pop, and I salute you for being old school. Morbid curiosity has transcended from analog to digital better than most things. In part, that comes from an evolutionary instinct that we have to learn how to spot danger in our environment from a safe distance, so on the boob tube or on your fancy iPhone. The idea here is that if you ever found yourself in a dangerous situation, you'd feel more prepared and be able to identify the danger to avoid getting killed. Now, Americans in particular want to be able to see into the minds of serial killers, which creates a psychological protective barrier. According to the New York Post, the average person walks past 36 murderers in their lifetime. We aren't crossing the street and avoiding predators in this podcast, but instead we're meeting them head-on. Now, historically, but not always, serial killing tends to be in urban environments because the urban landscape allows for anonymity, so a perp can be hide more easily under the radar. The U.S. is the runaway leader as the country with the most serial killers. There have been more serial killers in New York than any other state. 
We need some parameters here before we start throwing around labels. Our six in this podcast are a mix of mass murders, serial killings, and homicides. Serial killers are defined in most cases by committing at least three murders, but not at the same time, because then they would be defined as having committed mass murder. There most likely have always been serial killers in history, but the term serial killer as we use it is a new one that was coined by the FBI in the 1970s. There's been a tremendous amount of work done in psychology to look at the motivations, patterns, demographics, etc. Serial killers are most likely a combination of nature and nurture, so that means that they were born with the tendencies, but that they were made by their circumstances. For many, it's still the unidentified and very notorious Jack the Ripper who slashed at least five throats in the Whitechapel District of London between 1888 and 1891 that first comes to mind if you use the term serial killer. Jack the Ripper marks the pattern of more socioeconomically privileged men going after women of the night and people who wouldn't be missed. So, at least until they cover their tracks. But Jack the Ripper is an interesting one because it was a clear foray into modern criminal investigation in terms of rudimentary forensics and a police canvas, along with the construction of a character profile. The media frenzy screeched about the plight of the urban poor. Shocking headlines sent London into a terror, and it sold a lot of papers. We still don't know who Jack the Ripper is, and that mystery adds to the infamy. There are patterns, of course, to the personality of killers. Not always, but it seems that they often are social outliers. These are the quiet ones, the bullied ones, the unexpected ones. They're quietly festering away, apparently. Sometimes it's the people closest to them that become the victims. In other cases, the targets are complete strangers. Sometimes they're people who won't be missed. And that is why I brought up the clear pattern of targeting prostitutes. For Long Island examples, postal worker Robert Schumann from Hicksville was convicted in 1999 of beating five prostitutes to death. Another example, Long Island landscaper Joe Rifkin was sentenced in 1994 to killing 17 prostitutes. And don't worry, he's not eligible for parole until the ripe old age of 238. By the way, less than 9% of serial killers in the U.S. are women, and most of them acted for financial gain, which is very different than most male serial killers. So let's jump into the history of six cases that shook and shocked the island harder than a nor'easter. And we're going to start with number one, the Gilgo Beach serial killer. We'll start with a case so fresh that it's not even really history yet. The news, both local and internationally, has been banging with this story, and the trial hasn't even started. But it's history as these murders, at least the known ones, happened before 2010, when police went searching for the missing Shannon Gilbert, who went missing in the summer of 2010, 
They found four bodies of other women wrapped in burlap off of Ocean Parkway at Gilgo Beach. Her body was also found off of Ocean Parkway in 2011. All of these women were escorts who were advertising their services on Craigslist. Clearly, it was the work of a serial killer, but the case went cold. It seems like media coverage and things like Netflix documentaries put pressure on the police, and a task force was created in February of 2022. It's been 12 years with no leads and no person of interest. It looked like the police didn't care because the missing women were sex workers. The media has also pointed to infighting in the police department, making the case dysfunctional. Oddly enough, the department also pushed out the FBI, which normally would be at the helm in a serial case. The Gilgo killer is a good example of how it's often the average guys, those that are easily overlooked and off the radar. He actually was a classmate of Alex Baldwin's in school, the actor. And the actor tweeted recently that Rex was married, he had two kids, he was an architect, an average guy, quiet family man. And as Alex said, mind-boggling. The tiny cottage that he lived in in Massapequa Park was the home he was raised in. Often the nuclear family seems to be the most in disbelief. In this case, Rex's wife filed for divorce only a week after his arrest, Sayonara style. Now, what tipped off the police? Apparently, it was a sighting of the suspect's SUV in the large sea of SUVs that is Long Island that finally got some attention from police. It doesn't get any more Long Island than using DNA from a pizza crust to nail somebody to a wall. And I admit that my first thought was, what monster throws away a perfectly good pizza crust? It's the best part. But Rex Huerman doesn't think so. This 59-year-old hulking architect apparently used to make a game out of grossing out his co-workers with tales of baiting and butchering animals. He's now in jail awaiting trial. He was known to have solicited at least three of the escorts whose remains were found near Gilgo. Now, historians don't project what will happen, but it's looking pretty bad for him in terms of the evidence. And police have his computers, which logged more than 300 searches in the last year about why the Gilgo killer hadn't been found yet, along with more cookies than a Stelladoro factory pointing to obsessive searching about the victim's families. Another tip-off, the guy had 92 gun permits. If you don't know Ocean Parkway, down on the barrier beaches of the south shore of Long Island, it's such a dream on a warm, sunny day. It seems like the most tranquil place on earth. It's the perfect road to drive down with the windows open, testing your car's suspension, on the shifting sand dunes that have pushed up the asphalt into rolling hills while blasting Bananarama's cruel summer. And Gilgo is one of the best surf breaks on Long Island. Although as a surfer, it's always been a little extra creepy to me out there when something has brushed against my leg while I'm sitting in that dark water on my board. Because 18 bodies have been found in the area, who were murdered between 1996 and 2011. 
Time will tell how many there actually are, and if they were all perpetrated by the same person. Historians don't project, but in this case, it looks like they got it right. A 12-day search for evidence by the police has ended at his Massapequa Park home, and apparently there was even a basement vault that contained almost 300 guns. The yard's been dug up, and now comes the long process of going through all the material for forensic evidence. And the murders occurred while his family were out of town, so it's very possible that the house itself is ground zero for these killings. So at the moment of the many questions being asked, the question again of if he killed these women in his own home, and also if there are victims in other states. So police are exploring the possibilities of linking four prostitutes in Atlantic City that were found in a water ditch in New Jersey to Rex as well. And police in Las Vegas, where he owned a timeshare, have unsolved cases reopening as well. At the time of this podcast, there's been no request for bail, and Rex has pled not guilty. Apparently, his family has not visited him in prison. And moving on to case number two, and I bring to you Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco. Speaking of Massapequa, this is a sordid tale of the Long Island Lolita. Don't stand too close to me or the car lift style. So 36-year-old auto body shop owner Joey Buttafuoco had an affair with high school student Amy Fisher. Fisher met Joey by tagging along with her dad to the auto body shop, and she got the hots for Joey, and apparently damaged her car multiple times as an excuse to see him. But that's not what put the story on the map. On May 19th of 1992, Amy Fisher went to the Buttafuoco's Massapequa home and shot Joey's wife, Mary Jo, in the face and in her neck. Now, Joey, whose powerboat was named Double Trouble, was also charged with statutory rape because Amy was 16 when their relationship started, and Amy was charged with attempted murder and would go on to serve seven years in jail. Now, Joey and Mary Jo's marriage survived until 2003, miraculously. But in 2009, Mary Jo published a book whose title pretty much sums it up. The title of the book was Getting It Through My Thick Skull, Why I Stayed, What I Learned, and What Millions of People Involved with Sociopaths Need to Know. This book made the New York Times bestseller list, which tells you something about long-term public interest. And where are they now? Well, Joey went to prison for a year after he tried to hire a vice cop posing as a prostitute. He also got slapped with insurance fraud at the body shop and served prison time for possessing illegal ammunition. Now, not one to be outdone, Amy also wrote a book. She married a New York City cop and then went on to have a really lucrative career in pornography. These days, she's divorced with three kids. She was in Florida, but she left for Long Island, the motherland, with her kids in tow. And then she changed her name. But for a generation of tweens on Long Island, I think that this case hit hard in a formative way. At least for me, it did. I may have made a detour on the way to a baby shower recently just to drive past the auto body shop out of curiosity to see it with my own eyes. 
And there is definitely a 16th century Venetian oil painting that I was studying in graduate school that I had a really hard time not seeing Joey's likeness in. I guess you can take the girl from Long Island, but you really can't take Long Island out of the girl. And number three, the angel of death, Richard Angelo. On paper, this guy was definitely one of the good ones. He was an Eagle Scout, a volunteer fireman, a nurse at Good Samaritan Hospital in West Islip in 1987, where he got himself into trouble. Now, he was determined to be seen as a hero, so he would poison patients into a code blue with a cocktail of drugs and then go about trying to save them, which usually didn't work. Now, one of his victims managed to hit the call button and talk screen showed something was really amiss with the drugs in his system. So authorities found the same lethal cocktail of drugs in Richard's locker at work. So while his defense lawyers tried to prove that he had disassociative identity disorder and that he didn't know about his crimes, the court tossed that defense right out the window with the trash, and he was sentenced to 61 years in prison. Marty Tancliffe was a 17-year-old high school senior at my alma mater, Earl L. Vandermeulen High School. And if you can say that five times fast, I'm impressed. It's also known as Porchev High School. Now, Marty was accused of killing his parents and then sentenced to two consecutive terms of 25 to life in prison in 1990. Now, his conviction was overturned in 2008. In this 90210-esque Beltaire neighborhood, Marty called 911 when he found his parents stabbed and his father barely breathing. Now, all signs pointed towards his father's disgruntled business partner, who owed Tankliff's dad a boatload of money. The rumor, as I remember it in school, was that Marty's parents wouldn't let Marty drive the fancy sports car to school, and he got mad and took revenge. The entire thing, in hindsight, seems insane. Now, Marty's supposed confessions weren't Mirandized. There was no physical evidence, and the time of death is all wrong. The business partner probably did kill them. And then the business partner went and closed out their joint account and faked his own death. Now, Marty never gave up, and through appeals, he did manage to get himself exonerated. He actually joined the law firm that helped to free him. So not all accused killers are guilty. And go poor Jeff Royals. And that brings us to number five. And number five is Colin Ferguson, who on December 7th of 1993 boarded a Long Island commuter train in Jamaica, Queens. When Ferguson's train arrived in Garden City Park, he opened fire killing six people and wounding 19 others by walking up and down the train car shouting with a semi-automatic gun at passengers, randomly saying, I'm going to get you, and shooting over and over. Ferguson was tackled by badass Long Island tough passengers on that Long Island Railroad train while he was loading another 15-round magazine. The scene was chaos because the conductor didn't want to open the doors because not all the cars had platformed. 
A notebook in Ferguson's pocket said that the reason for the killing was to target Caucasians for their racism, which is why he waited until they were outside of New York City to start shooting in respect to African-American Mayor David Dinkins. The Ferguson was an extremely troubled man who seems to have cracked due to the financial ruin caused by the death of his parents. He was actually born in Kingston, Jamaica, but he was in the U.S. on a K-1 visa. His divorce apparently set him over the edge. And he, like many killers, had shown violent tendencies before in terms of domestic abuse. And then he got himself kicked out of Nassau Community College for being aggressive towards one of his professors. He was also arrested for attacking a woman on the subway for simply taking a vacant seat next to him. All the signs were there. At the trial, Ferguson represented himself, and it was really bizarre, like Looney Tones. It was shown on TV, but overshadowed by O.J. Simpson's trial on the West Coast at the same time. The juice is loose, but not Ferguson, because this wackadoo claimed in court that he did bring a gun on the train, but that he fell asleep and somebody else had fired it. He talked about himself in the third person, then went on to request Bill Clinton as a witness for the defense, who was president at the time, and he compared himself to John the Baptist in his closing arguments. Ferguson would go on to tell the judge that he would be killed in prison by Jewish Defense League members, and he was deemed fit psychologically to stand trial. So he got slapped with a sentence of 315 years and eight months. The judge at the sentencing called him selfish, self-righteous, and a coward, and then sent him packing to Attica. The aftermath included some gasoline thrown on race relations around New York and renewed efforts for gun control. So last but not least, this takes us to number six. And boo, for good measure, because this is the supernatural one. We're going to take a look at Ronald Defoe Jr., the perpetrator of the Amityville murders. This crime has been known internationally, in part due to the belief that the house is haunted. And there was wild success with a book and a film called The Amityville Horror House. It all went down on November 13th of 1974 at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Now, it's been renumbered as 108 if you want to do a drive-by. That night, 23-year-old Ronald shot and killed six of his family members, including his mom, his dad, two younger brothers, and two younger sisters. Butch, as he was known, actually turned out to be quite a butcher. There are more conspiracy theories around this one than I care to count. Was he in the mafia? Maybe he was possessed by demons. Maybe there was a Native American burial ground beneath the house, etc., etc. Now, Butch claimed that he heard voices in his head, but he was deemed not to be insane during his trial. Rather, the judge said that he was a drug addict. He died in prison in 2021. And I'm just going to throw in here that, interestingly enough, Defoe was married three times in prison, and one has to wonder about that. Now, noteworthy is that many believe that this house continues to be haunted. The family that moved in after the murders left with the clothes on their back after only 28 days, 
claiming that green slime was coming out of the walls and that one of their kids was levitating, even that they saw a demon pig with glowing red eyes. The house has had four more owners since, but none of them have made public reports about paranormal activity. The framing of the large home makes for a face-like outline that is actually quite ideal for a haunted house. It takes a lot to shock a historian, but I'm on the verge. So I, for one, am going to leave the lights on tonight. And that brings us to the end of our list. But the historian in me remains curious. I mean, what is the human fascination with murders? Is it the madness? Is it desire to solve the mystery? But whatever it is, it makes us rubberneck. So from Amityville to Massapequa Park, houses themselves have become tourist attractions. The curious drive and walk by with unapologetic fascination. But what do they expect to see? Answers? When we don't recognize the predator and they are that close to home, that shocks us. And human beings don't like feeling their own mortality. Those are the neighbors in the streets that are bewildered and wide-eyed, shaking their head on the evening news, claiming that, but, but, they seemed harmless. So see you next time, and thank you for coming along for this particularly wild ride. 